We're on a mission. We're going to find and uncover the smartest, most successful entrepreneurs on the planet, explore their highs, their lows, and how they ultimately mastered the game. I'm Martin Cook, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Smarter Destiny podcast. I'm grateful for you and your time. Now let's level up together. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another Smart Destiny podcast, where this time we are joined by my close friend, Derek Haney. Derek is the Chief Technologist at E-Commerce Tech, which is a vendor marketplace for merchants. What does that mean? He personally founded this awesome tool that we all need, but we didn't know we needed, which helps you as an e-commerce brand owner navigate the minefield that is the technologies, SaaS, apps, all of the above, that all promise to help your e-commerce business and all seem to seemingly do the same thing, right? And promise the same thing. Derek's your man and his e-commerce tech is the solution to the headache, the problem that is hopping on a quick call, which I fucking hate both those terms, by the way, with like 40 different app providers all promising the same thing and trying to figure out which one is the one that you're going to sign up to. Do you want the annual plan or the monthly? It's a headache. It's a horrible experience. Derek and his team are here to help you with that. But Derek doesn't just do technology. That's what he does at the moment, but he actually comes from an e-commerce past. He also comes from a high stakes past, which we're going to go into in a minute. Derek has done good things in his past. Things like growing a monthly subscription beauty box brand past half a million dollars per month. That's pretty cool. He was also employee subscribers. He was also employee number eight-ish at Gorgeous. He was the head of growth of the stupendously fast-growing customer service software, Gorgeous. He's also may well be found at the high-stakes poker tables where, if you've caught him on a good day, he may well be walking away with a six-figure cash-out, as he has done on a few occasions in the past. He's a good guy. We've hung out personally at one of our masterminds, so I am delighted and ecstatic to welcome him to the show with this long-winded introduction. Derek, how's it going? Oh, it's going good, man. Yeah, the good old days. That was so much fun in the Dominican Republic. I remember it like it was yesterday. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was it was a good time. We even actually had like another high-stakes poker player there. And so it was uh, it got tense around the, the poker tables at night. Yeah, didn't I, I still so. talk with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Derek, whereabouts in the world are you right now? I'm located just outside of San Francisco in the lovely suburbs of Walnut Creek. Beautiful. Um, and then pretty good place to be as well if you're running a tech business. So um, the way we like to kick things off on this show is we like to go back. We like to understand where you came from as the entrepreneur, how you got into it, and what drivers were involved in that origin story of yours. So if you have a time and place in mind, could you take us back to that time and place and read us the story? <laughs> All right, we're going pretty far back here. Um, I believe I was seven years old when I started mowing the neighbor's yard for five dollars uh, each. And my uh, so which is not bad, five dollars, I think it was every other week or something like that. So I'm like making like twenty dollars a month. It felt good. My next door neighbor is my best friend. And uh, my father, of course, provides the lawnmower and the gas. So I told my best friend I'd pay him two fifty 
to mow the neighbor's yard. And, um, and uh, I remember their mother didn't like that so much. She came over to the house, yelled at my father. You can't do this. You know, this isn't fair to my son, et cetera, et cetera. And after she left, my dad goes, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so proud of you, son. You know, that's your first employee. Right. So uh, so didn't last very long, got shook down by the by the mafia. But um, that was that was the very first moment of entrepreneurship for me. And then going through selling lollipops in high school, I tried selling things on eBay and in, in, uh, lollipops in middle school on eBay in high school um, and then coming across poker in college and um, and realizing it was a game of skill that that if uh, if you studied hard enough, you could absolutely um, it's a game of skill where where money is what you're you know betting as opposed to like chess where you're moving pieces, right? To, in order to navigate, and so because money is the instrument, it's the mechanism in which uh, you're able to play strategically. Um, there's opportunity to make a lot of money in poker, or at least there was, and so that got me down the path of playing high stakes poker for about ten years. Uh, graduated with a business degree, UC Santa Cruz, and I always knew that the money I was making was kind of going to be reserved for transferring into business. I wasn't going to play poker forever because it's a, it's a freelancer job. You're, you know, you cannot scale, you cannot hire employees. It is one person's time in and money out. And it's also has an upper bound ceiling. You can only make as much money as how much other people lose. And it's actually a more complicated formula. I'll spare you. Um, and so, yeah, from there, um, uh, started my digital marketing agency with my wife, had no idea what we were doing. Went straight into the deep end, helping small businesses, micro businesses. Uh, actually, our, one of our first customers was a casino, of course. Uh, and uh, and that, that started to do okay. But after four years and, and, um, and not really breaking through the noise with that, um, one of our clients decided to, to hire me for a, a ridiculous salary. So went in-house with a beauty box subscription. And uh, at that point, I, I did have all the, let's say, personal tools of understanding marketing, digital marketing, growth, advertising, social media. And so I was well uh, toned for, for scaling that company out. And, and that was where I'd say I hit some major successes for them in a short, I think I only worked there for four or five months. Um, and then decided to come back to San Francisco and work with the team at Gorgeous, where I got to see what I think is some of the strongest growth fundamentals of any organization, very well organized, very thoughtful, as opposed to e-commerce is all about fires, putting out fires, you know, running around with your head cut off. Spinning and plates on fire. Yeah, spinning yeah. plates, plate, spinning plates and putting out fires at the same time. That is basically e-commerce. <laughs> um, and I think about that all the time as I look at merchants and their businesses and dive into them. And then, um, but in SaaS, I mean, well-organized growth, you know, raising capital and having a clear trajectory on how to deploy that capital into an organization. Um, and that what that's what brought me to my my current place uh, starting e-commerce tech. I saw the technology providers needing to break into e-commerce, really successful technology being built that is like gonna like game changers. Like honestly, a lot of these tools can can be absolute game changers. But merchants, like how are they gonna find out about these and when is the right time, right? Like it's not just every moment you need to implement 20 solutions and then you'll be rich. It's like actually there needs to be like a rollout strategy and all that stuff. And I was like, no one's tackling this problem. They're, both sides of the market are like desperate for this kind of solution. And so that thus e-commerce tech was born. And that's that's basically the whole journey, I'd say. 
It's amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I teed you up, like I said, we, we've known each other now a few years and we've, we, we've had the pleasure of hanging out in person. And, um, you know, I remember when e-commerce tech was was founding and, you know, you, you were starting it and you were you were the guy with the big ideas. And like it's, it's incredible to see like two years down the line, um, I think since we last spoke or like since you were sort of founding it and we were talking about that in the sort of early days, it, it's just amazing to see just how far it's come and how much and how quickly it's grown um, as it's solving that problem that the, the e-commerce uh, brand owners and CMOs have, which is just there is a, I want to say dearth, I'm actually not sure if that's the right word, but there is a ton of options out there. It's not an information problem. It's a filtering problem. There's 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 so much out there. And uh, I think just generally right now we're in an age of there is a, it's not an information problem. You can get information on your phone. Like it's uh, like, well, do I listen to this guy telling me this or do I do this person says fasting's the shit this person says fasting's not the shit and it will kill you which do I listen to right like you know and and that's that's the challenge that we're in across across everything and and in particular in, in e-commerce right everyone wants all of the software providers out there are promising and uh, uh, you know a lot and, and and which one is right for you um it isn't as simple as well this is the best technology um there's a big difference between a brand that sells, uh, for example, supplements like Nubrew and a brand that sells watches or sunglasses. And, um, you know, it's to the point where, um, those, those people that send inbound emails to my, to my inbox, I love you so much, you know, but the 20 or 30 emails a week from, from agencies and, and service providers saying, Hey, can we just hop on a quick call? And if it waste your time, I'll buy you a, a, a meal or whatever, an Uber Eats or fucking something like this. It's, I've started replying to the ones which sort of, you know, not, not many of them, but the ones I'm replying to, it's like, give me evidence of you doing this with a supplement brand because it's so different. And, and so that comes into the technology as well. And, and the fact that you're solving the solution and taking into account, like what kind of product or service is being sold online is so important. And that's why, um, you know, after all of this time, I felt like the audience of Smart Destiny needs to hear about this. So we're going to jump into that in just a moment. But first, we sort of glossed over it quite quickly. Now, you did a little bit of time, six months, at a beauty box brand, subscription box, and you grew that. I, I didn't. I missed the what you grew it from, but the 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 two was past five hundred million. Uh, five hundred million. Five hundred thousand a month. What was it from? Five hundred thousand subscribers from about one hundred and fifty thousand is when we started working with the brand as an agency, and then went in in house full time. Um, they had never really thought advertising was a was a key channel for them. So I'd say a lot of the growth was off advertising, but. Um, but a couple of other important changes were, uh, here's the fun one. We actually started emailing our list. Crazy idea, oh, right? Is that <laughs> um, a thing? And, yeah. It's, it, and it's, it's hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So we, we, that had never been emailed except for the, tra uh, the receipt order, uh, order receipt email. Wow. Right. And that was it. And then we also implemented, um, under my guidance, a double referral program. And what was really important and, and I'll say, show how it works, but it's, it was, um, you know, uh, when you're when you're dealing with large numbers like this and the way the beauty works, you have to buy everything nine months in advance. You're going to have a lot of inventory sitting in your warehouse that you can't move. You just uh, based on the nature of this business, it's a discovery beauty box. So you can't just put, you know, the, the product in next month's box for the same person. They'll be really upset. Right. So 
tens of thousands of products sitting on the shelves, we would go identify those products and we would say, can that fit inside this tiny box with these other five products? So if yes, then we can say that we're going to give you a product in your next month's box and we'll give, and if you tell a friend, we'll give them that product for free as well. And so this double referral program, getting uh, a sixth product for free in your box, uh, it got tens of thousands of referrals coming in every month. It was a huge success and it cleared the inventory off our shelves. It, set, it didn't cost us any extra in shipping and the, you know, the, the, the cogs, the cost of goods sold on the product was, was like a dollar, right? So like huge, uh, amazing cost of acquisition for a new customer. We also saw greater retention from both sides of the double referral, which is usually to be expected. So, so I think that was a big win. And then the, the hardest part about it was the, the lever of advertising, because I did have uh, strict goals on cost of acquisition, um, and, and like we we had to keep that pretty low. But we needed to always hit the exact number of boxes we had ready. Like I said, nine month lead time. So we know nine months from now we need exactly this many subscribers to buy our product. If it's one more, that person's going to get waitlisted. So that's kind of a waste of acquiring a customer. If it's one less, then we've got products sitting on the shelf. That's a waste of inventory, warehouse costs, etc. So we want this exact number. How do we hit those numbers and how do we use that lever of advertising in order to do that? Meanwhile, there's a whole influencer program, 300,000 a month plus spent on influencer. And we're spending, uh, you know, at the peaked out at about three, 400,000 a month in, in ad spend um, as well. And so finding the right ad creatives was a big part of that. Testing, testing. Uh, Cardi B ended up being our big success there. Uh, we She did an influencer uh, unboxing for us. And then I spun that video out in so many different ways uh, on, on ads. And it was it was a really great cost acquisition, lasted for, for months. I love that. And I've always been curious on the, on the subscription boxes and so on. Um, what's the, what's the pitch to the, the product owners, the product owners putting things in the box because you, you definitely can't be buying them retail and, but then 10,000 units is a lot of units, right? So there must be some kind of quid pro quo, exactly even more. So what, what's the conversation with these, these, uh, these brand owners? What is it they're looking for to be, like why do they wanna be in your box and what is it that you're offering them in return? And what's the kind of price or, or promise that goes on? Yeah, uh, uh, let's, let's go into it, yeah. Um, so the, the first thing is when you're small, None of these brands really want to do any business with you. So there, there is a point of scale that's required even to just get into conversations. And when, th when this beauty box brand was small, um, they actually had, um, they, they did um, liquidation inventory. So they were buying liquidated products and putting it in. So it was actually really a low quality product to begin with. Once they hit a point of scale, brands started be willing, were willing to work with them. But this other problem emerged, which is, we, we, we are going to make 5 million of our product this year. We're going to put it in retail. We're going to sell it here, here, and here. And you're asking for 100,000 of that 5 million to be sold at just basically the cost of goods sold. And that's how we, we bought things at about cost of goods sold, maybe a few pennies over cost of goods sold. And as we kind of know in beauty, like a lot of these things sell for $60 are really worth $3 to make, right? So there's yeah. large margins on a lot of these products, which is why we're able to fit $120 a product in a $21 a month box, because the cost of goods sold is very small. But if I know I'm gonna sell 5 million products, why would I put 100,000 of them on hold at this lower margin? Makes no sense, right? So huge, huge, huge problem. 
there were two things that ended up happening. The first was you could get that to happen sometimes because they weren't sure how well they would sell all of their product. If you were able to frame it as, look, we're going to get you in the hands of 100,000 new people, and then you're going to get all these reorders on your store, you're going to get 400,000 mentions on social media, whatever it is, right? Like those kinds of things, right? Uh, so so there's, there's clear value there. But what we actually had to do to really make it make sense for these larger brands, like working with like Elf Cosmetics and uh, and... Um, and other, I don't even, I can't even remember all the beauty yeah. brands out there. Uh, obviously I don't wear makeup. So after leaving the industry, I, I, have, I haven't, I haven't yeah. looked at the products in a while. Um, so we, we told them that don't think about, don't put this 5 million, like at your inventory level, don't take us out of your operational costs, make this a marketing cost, have your marketing department spend a hundred thousand dollars and then you're going to sell it back to us. So it's, you know, it's it's actually the marketing department will make money on this. So put it under your marketing department budget and then, you know, watch watch how this uh, how well this works. And that that meant them actually going to the manufacturers and saying we want 100,000 more units. Right. So that that was the best way to frame it and get people working with you. And of course, those nine plus month lead times were really uh, yeah, tough to work around as well. So, so it was, it was, it was a logistical nightmare and I, I'm glad to be on the marketing side more than the operations side. It reminds me of a story actually. So, um, so I, I've spoken on other podcasts about the, the importance of building a board of advisors for, for any business, right. And uh, new brew, the two years planning going into that, a chunk of that was, was rounding up the, the best people that I could possibly find in my network and, um, selling them on the vision of new brew and, and, and my ability to deliver, right. A, um, what will be, you know, a nine figure exit of a personalized nootropic, right now, um, and, and showing all the slides and getting them excited about it. Now, I was fortunate. Uh, one of the advisors was who's who's really stands in now as our like financial officer, our financial director. He used to be um, the 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 FD, which is like you know um, CFO, uh, but in the in the UK it's like financial director of a uh, hundred million pound like revenue flour company. Now, not the, the baking kind, but like the, the pretty kind, the, the, the kind that grows, right? And so from a, lo- from a logistical point of view, right, their inventory, they have to start it growing, however long in the past. And then from the second they like cut it, it has to be sold because it starts like getting really less valuable really quickly once it's been like harvested. And yeah, those kind of things, I'm just like, fuck, that's that's really tricky and you know was meanwhile we're like looking at like shit how can we uh, manage when uh, this influencer that we're working with does like a shout out and, and suddenly poof like a, a, an influx of orders come in and we're like shit have we have we planned for this you know like how yeah, these brands do, that, do that no no you can't do that can you cardi b tweets out hey these daisies are the nuts right like it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be tricky so i mean that's that's so cool what about um subscription boxes as an idea, like how how viable, in your opinion, which I hold valuable, your opinion, how viable is the um, the idea of a marketing channel being reaching out to these um, subscription box brands with your e-commerce product if it would fit in a typical box um, as a sales and discovery channel? And if so, how would you actually go about that? 
I think, first of all, you know, this is absolutely for established merchants to have clear supply chains in order to make the investment into a channel like this. So uh, don't don't look at it from day one, look at it from day, you know, uh, 780 or whatever. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and and um, it's, it's a, of course, another thing here is just weighing options. I could just do this instead of that. So am I ready to break into this channel? Does it seem like a viable option? Um, each space is a little bit different, but what you're looking for is a highly discoverable uh, box. So, you know, there are two types of boxes or, or subscriptions, renewal and discovery. You're looking for somebody that puts different products in the box every month and you want yours to be discoverable. So at the very beginning, you need a discoverable product. If your product is um, is basic, uh, you know, Dollar Shave Club razors, that's a renewable product, right? If it's just bottles of water, look, your, your water is not all that innovative, even if you call it alkaline water or whatever. Like, you know, it's some, you know, it's if it's just water, it's water. It's not going to be too much of an innovation, right? So even even boxed water, which is like the, you know the new hot thing or whatever, like it's not really an, an innovation or or really unique. I think your product would be fine in in a discovery component because um, because it might be something that people aren't really ready to uh, to buy on their own. But if they get it in a as a surprise in a in a box, they'll try it and then they'll they might come back to you. So you'll have a, a nice conversion rate from that. So. Um, so that's the first thing. And then, of course, you're looking at audience overlap. What percentage of their audience fits my profile? At, at our Beauty Box subscription brand, um, you know, it's tempting to look at a lot of influencers who are very beautiful and wear a lot of makeup as perspective, you know, media buys. But what, what turns out is that the more beautiful they are, the more they have a, a large male following, men do not buy beauty products. And so uh, the, the sweet spot was almost always um, uh, makeup tutorialists and, and people that did unboxing of kind of beauty oriented products and things like that. Those people move product, the ones that um, you know, the supermodels, like literally we were, we were looking at buying supermodels. I had to go to my executive team and slow, slow the reins when I just did some basic, like, um, like filtering. Cause you have these influencer following tools, you know, to, to go, Hey guys, 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 you're going to pay top dollar, but only 20% of their audience is our target audience. Like maybe, maybe it's not a good fit. Um, but so, uh, so, so really looking at audience, uh, profile overlap, um, and, and making sure you can put the inventory in the box. Having a strong call to action to get people back to your site. Um, and also, I mean, you do have to know your margins, your cogs, and your lifetime value in order to make investments like this as well. And so what would be the pitch? So you, you, you've done your due diligence. You're happy with all of that. Now you found um, your, your shortlist, your hit list of discoverable subscription boxes. How would you go about nowadays reaching out to them? And what's the pitch? Why is it like, why, why would they put... How can you coerce them into putting your product into their box? What do they want to know? I think it's a little easier than you think because usually they have a person on their team whose job it is is to find products for the box. So, so they're, they're you're doing them a favor. So the, the 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 easiest way to get that favor through the finish line is to have all the ducks in the row. Here's the one pager. Here's what it would look like. Here's what your costs are going to be. Here's what I want from you. You know, let's sign the contract, right? So if you can get all those things and, and kind of speak the same language as them, as well as know what they're looking for. They're looking for things that are highly discoverable, really innovative. You know, what is it? They're looking for gadgets, gizmos. You know, every little corner is different. They're looking for a partner with a large social media following. Do you have that? Right. Can you promote this to your audience? Are you going to put marketing power behind this on your side? Um, and some of the smaller mid-sized boxes are, you know, trying to grow off of the back of the brands that they're promoting, essentially, right? So it's like you are, you're an influencer, but you're also trying to gain influencership 
from everyone else, which is always a smart play for really any brand in any position. So I think that, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's too hard to get in front of the right person. Often there's a link right on the on the site somewhere. You go to LinkedIn and you find, you know, the head of merchandising or something like that from, from that brand. You reach out to them. You can even go through customer service, but that's like the worst way. I will, I've tried it and it's actually the worst way to get in touch with the right person, but it can work sometimes. Um, and then of course, I do think you should actually buy the product. So see what their last three boxes look like or something along those lines. And um, to make sure that you think their quality, look at what their customers are saying on social media. And yeah, there's always going to be negative feedback. Products break in transit and people get really, you know, the scream at brands for that kind of stuff, even though it's not, you know, anybody's fault. Um, but but look at the real like, oh, this product was made really poorly. Oh, you have no quality standards. It's like, oh, do I really want to be associated with a discovery box that's just putting crap out there? Um, I think so, yeah, I think that's yeah. brilliant, and I think um, yeah, I, I'm putting you on the spot there because actually that wasn't really something that's necessarily like directly a part of your your history. But I think this it taps into your strategic out of the box. I hate that term as well. Thinking right, like that 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 just like how would you go about it, and how how do you think about like what's in it for the other person? And I think what you described as well is a pretty good approach for offline retail as well, and and buyers of like the stores and stuff, which is absolutely something that all e-commerce brands should at least have a part of their focus on, or like a part of their uh, strategy you know, touching upon and particularly now as I think things are beginning to swing back to offline retail. I mean, offline retail is still like 90% of purchases, by the way, but like, it just feels like now people are sort of swinging back and, you know, they want that that touchy feely experience again, unless of the, the pixels and digital both have a place, of course. Um, but it's just really interesting to see how you would go about that because you, you, you're a strategist for sure. And I, I think you're right. I do think breaking into retail is a bit harder. Some, you, have, you have a slightly different language. You have to be in a good position. I do agree with you. It's a matter of uh, when, not if I'm going to be going to retail. If you're still direct to consumer e-commerce, uh, you should have a strategy. Uh, you do. You should stay focused. I do think it is can be a distraction for you know uh, seven and even some like small eight figure brands, but as you move into nine figures, you've got to have a person for it or, or really start to 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 figure out um, how you're going to break into certain stores or channels that can drive e-commerce sales forward. And then having a omni-channel strategy that makes that's centered around customer experience and e-commerce digital experience, so that you can continue conversations from one to the other, the, the language in retail, I don't actually know it at all. Um, and then the the buyers are, are getting hit up more and more. So they're really, it is more, it's pickier than getting into a discovery box, but maybe that's the stepping stone, get into a few discovery mm -hmm. boxes and show a retailer the success of that uh, um, side of things. And then you've got some power to, to move into retail. You've got some leverage. And I think having like a strong Amazon presence as well as another form of leverage or, or any of those kind of marketplaces like your Walmarts and so on, I think demonstrating that you're well-reviewed and well-liked and a product category leader and so on, all of those are, are levers in, in that discussion. All right, let's, um, let's f jump ahead a little bit. So e-commerce tech, how did you spot this gap in the market and, and like... And, and jump into it yeah yeah the so um <laughs> i started with a marketing strategy and then started to build a product around it and i do recommend this uh for <laughs> i see a lot of SaaS companies that like 
sit in the garage, build the product, no clear uh, way to get to market. That's actually what I built this for. So we just talked about a beauty box subscription where you need to be discovered and it's like, it's imagine being a small, hot brand um, and, and a beauty brand and having no clear go to market. And then it's like, oh, this they can get us in the hands of hundreds of thousands of people. Let's do that, right? So there's nothing like that for technology products. That was, So having that experience in a beauty box made me think about discovery from a technology tool standpoint, because I've always been a tech tool nerd. I've, I've demoed hundreds of products in the past. Now it's my job to demo products, but even before that, like testing every little bell and whistle for my agency, I felt like my job was to understand the tool landscape, plug them into my clients, you know? So, so the discoverability of tools I thought was, was really important, but on the marketing strategy side, I noticed that the Shopify, Shopify partner ecosystem was really strong. Everyone loved to promote each other and they were always looking for co-marketing activities. And this is my time at Gorgeous. I was like, oh my God, like this person wants to help us. They'll email their list. They've got 30,000 people on their list because, you know, and they're like a small mid-sized tool. They're not even a big tool. And so all of a sudden I realized like, hosting virtual events and gathering those in e-commerce could be easy. People were willing to pay for sponsorships of them. They were desperate to get in front of the, the merchants. And so if I could aggregate merchant eyeballs and if I could aggregate technology, essentially sponsors, all each sponsor individually uh, is, you know, the, the sum of the parts are, are stronger than the whole. Each of them are emailing their lists and that's how I'm going to drive the traffic. And so the traffic is you know, equivocally free or they're paying me and, and driving me the, the, the people. And then of course the, the, the event itself farms the leads back out to providers, but in a more efficient way in which, you know, the merchant themselves is actually getting, uh, the benefit of kind of choosing the right technology providers, discovering the right tools, right? That's so the, the virtual event was the first form of uh, this technology product discovery, let's say. And of course, there's a lot of e-commerce learning, leadership, let's say master classes, and of course, you've spoken at a few of these events. So it's it's really uh, a mix of things with uh, uh, technology discovery, like baked into the ecosystem. And so I thought, wow, if I can get people to pay me money, drive registrants, like I can really start to aggregate people around this, build a community. And then I was like, well, how do we, what's the next like step here? And so then we said, well, I have a lot of personal expertise. Why don't I talk to merchants about their tech stack and, and see if I can't help them choose some tools. So we started doing one hour consultations with merchants. It's still available. It's a free process. Uh, we just go through what's going on today. Um, let, tell, what are your tools? How much money are you making? Like we ask some, you know, we need all the business insights in order to give good advice. Well, who's in your marketing department? You know, how big is operations? How many customer service team members do you have? Because all those things dictate where your best opportunity is and what tool will fill that opportunity gap, as well as who's going, what resource is going to manage that tool. Because most tools, there are some like easy win tools that like plug in and then you're just making more money. But most tools have somebody managing them, somebody's accountable to it, and really they're using it in order to streamline the business in order to make more money. And so the manual consultative process is going well. Uh, I've done over 300 of them now. It's the same, it's a very similar process. And I said, I don't need to be in this call. I can build technology to do this, right? And so that's when we switched from this media and events company with the manual consultative process to thinking about the, the vendor management and, uh, and platform and marketplace and how we can get vendors to give us certain information. So they'll be, they give us pricing, their integration list, their feature set, 
and, and having that like updated and let's say quantified in the back end of a database. And then how do we get merchants to give us their information? So we realize that if you're spending money on a SaaS product, that's coming through his credit card or bank transactions. So we're building a banking integration so we can immediately line item these in what we call a tool ledger. So merchants will be able to see the cost over time. Oh, look, that was at $5 a month a year ago. It's up to $80 a month. It looks like it's going to continue to rise in cost over time. And that can help you understand your business from a financial standpoint, but it also helps you start to visualize return on the investment of each of these tools in the tool stack. And we can also identify overlaps and gaps in the tool stack and start making the next stage of the business will be recommendations from there. So gathering data, it's a lot of data to gather that's never been gathered before, creating this kind of algorithmic approach to spitting out the best tools. It just kind of all kind of clicked together as, a, as the business evolved, I guess. Um, I, I, I knew we wanted to build technology from the very beginning, but I knew that I didn't need technology to facilitate the connection of a merchant finding a technology vendor. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I think it's amazing. And you, you started with that, that just hands-on. I mean, like we, we were speaking with a YouTube influencer uh, yesterday, right? And he talked about how he, so he he helps people with beard care and, and he was reaching out based on like the Facebook profile picture. If they had a beard, he'd like reach out and be like, hey, um, you know, I'm an, a, a beard expert. Can I help you with your beard, right? And that was like how he grew his thing. It was it was roll up your sleeves, grunt work, right? And, and the fact that you were doing that personal touch for free, um, you know, where you're, you're, you're being the Sherpa of the, all of these e-commerce brands who are like, right, I know I do need technology, but fuck, I just see like a $9.99.99 per month, whatever on the, on the pricing plans page. And, and I just, you know, I'm lost. So providing that service, like automatically understanding it, beginning to get to see the patterns over the 300 you've done, and then beginning to like do some of the heavy lifting them with technology is, is such a smart move. But even in the early days, like the virtual event, you put on. I just, I just thought it was genius. Like you know, all of these big, um, the, the 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 speakers. They were like notable speakers. Myself as well. Um, but you know, there was notable notable speakers from these these brands serving who were already serving your customers. Who then, as part of the speaking gig, were sharing that they're speaking at this speaking gig with their subscribers, who would then go and and attend. And 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 now they become um, your listener. You did a number you of these. Use the influencers, and, man. Use their influencership yeah. to grow your own. How big? did your how big have you built your list off of that we're, we're about at 20,000 right now um and and this year we'll double that at least and that's engaged that's engaged webinar um you know attendees and these were day long <laughs> day long things right they weren't they weren't short things and uh, you know so it's it's brilliant and it was so so valuable and 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 such a great thing i think the the pandemic brought out a few like a few people did this model in the pandemic but like you were doing it before it was pandemic cool right like yeah, i know then everyone then. caught on to my great idea and there, <laughs> there became a lot more competition in the virtual event space uh but i you know fatigue from that for sure people i think that's great yeah so um where can people find out more about e-commerce tech and begin to get involved and extract some of the value um that's on offer uh, yeah, if you go to ecommercetech.io, you can browse through the apps that I've personally reviewed. Um, every one of the tools listed on that site, I've done a demo of the tool and done my own personal write-up of the tool. We are not actually going to plan. We will scale it away from me, but it will continue to be an internalized kind of uh, viewpoint of when you should use the tool, who in the company should use it, what types of brands is it going to be best for, what types of brands is it not 
for, right? Like, um, like you were talking about, like low SKU stores don't need uh, certain solutions. Uh, low average order value stores don't need certain solutions. There's, there's a lot of things we can kind of rule out immediately and help the merchant just kind of go through that process and understand um, where, where all the opportunities are. So just browsing through the site, there's a button there, of course, if you want to book a consultation with me, we're still very open to do that. And then in the future, uh, near term, we will have beta testing within six weeks of our tool ledger, our vendor management platform is what we call it, so that merchants can actually see the spend and get the recommendations of which tools to use next. I think that's brilliant. So e-commerce tech, uh, do e-commerce tech.io, is that the URL to go to? Check it out, folks, and uh, that headache and those hopping on a quick Zoom. By the way, remove that from your vocabulary completely. It's a terrible, terrible. You're not hopping, and it's not 15 minutes. But uh, all of that pain um, will 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 go away with the uh, the numbing cream, the numbing and enlightening cream that is e-commerce-tech.io. Check it out. Derek, at this point in the show, we like to mix it up. We change pace. We go into the rapid-fire question round. I ask the questions well, at the speed that I can talk, and you can answer them at the speed that you choose. Are you up for that? <laughs> Two thumbs up, up for that? There we go. That's like, I think that's the 300th thumb on the show right there. Um, well, the 299th and 300th thumb there. So that's, that's pretty cool. Congrats. All right, let's jump in. Question number one, if you ever had to start again, how would you make your money? Um, well, I, I, I like to think that in 10 years time, I'll, I'll be in venture capital. I think investing, uh, and you can invest other people's money. So you don't even have, you raise capital and then go and invest it. So, um, and I think there's a, a lot of value in, in that ecosystem. Um, right. I'm fair. I'm raising capital right now. And I'm actually really not impressed with the strategy put forth by a lot of these funds on how they vet and manage the inflow of, of deals. Um, so, so I think there's innovations to be done there, including on the AI side. I think you can do a lot of AI ML to predict successful brands and technologies and then invest in them once you have that information. Uh, private markets are way more fun than public markets, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of growth. I think there's a lot more exponential growth in, in the private markets, like you said, and getting your foot in the door um, early on with, with the right founder, with the right idea at the right time. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of innovation that can can take place there. And yeah, machine learning, this is a winner. <laughs> Brilliant. There you go. Here's some money. That would be cool. What's the most common or biggest mistake leaders make? Uh, overextending. So um, trying to do shiny object syndrome, trying to do too many things at once. And of course, this is something I'm trying to solve with our tool is, is to roadmap things and look at how internal resources will be allocated in order to understand if somebody's going over bandwidth. We're always spinning plates and putting out fires. I know a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs literally packing things in their own, you know, a dining room till 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or 1 a.m. every night. And I think um, while there is a certain amount of hustle that's required in the early days and all that stuff, those types of things do lead to burnout if you can't pace yourself. And if you're expecting your team to move too fast, they will also burn out. They'll churn on you. And those are expensive things. So just making sure that if you're adding a new initiative, it's like, what are we deleting, right? Because you probably were already at or over capacity before. So what are you actually going to take away or how, have the, how has the organization scaled in order to afford from a time and resource allocation standpoint to execute on this new initiative? Brilliant. How do you hire top talent? 
you know, I'm not the right person to ask because honestly, and um, it's I, I haven't hired a lot of top talent. I like to hire um, entrepreneurs and people that are thinking for themselves. Our organization is fully remote. And we embrace what's called the five-hour workday, which is, is exactly what it sounds like. Um, we just work our asses off for five hours, and then we get to do whatever we want. Um, and, but in order to, in order for that to work, you have to be really well structured and be be able to execute independently for those five hours, and it has to come to fruition. So, um, so setting, so so making sure that the, the team member that I'm hiring has a lot of those attributes of uh, of focused hard work self-organization and and entrepreneur slash entrepreneurship. Beautiful. How do you identify a good business partner? Um, and I had to do this recently as I just brought in my CTO. Uh, it's all about culture fit. Um, so you, you want to talk about the culture of their last organizations. Um, and you should, and I guess a part of hiring good talent is also walking them back. There's a good book, Who? I know there's a book question, but um, yeah. Who is a great book for hiring. My wife has used it very well in her jobs and organizations. I have uh, a more hodgepodge taken from the book and then adopted it to be my own. Um, but yeah, uh, the for, for a good business partner, you need them to believe in the same core values and vision as you. Um, their, you know, technical expertise uh, of my co-founder. I didn't, I didn't, you know, question his Java or or Python scripting. I we didn't need to go into those things. He had a track record of being a director of engineering, managing 50, 100 person teams. I was like, I trust you completely on that side. How are we going to? operate together? How are you going to think strategically or question me? I, I want you to always question me, stop me when I'm wrong and, and push back on my ideas because I'm going to be very blind. And then I also need them uh, to operate independently because uh, I like I, I need you to build the roadmap because I don't know how to do that for a technology product. I'm, I, I do. I'm not the worst at it. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm not you know, a CTO, right? So, so um, it was a good process. I vetted a few candidates and I ended up going with the one that had just the strongest long-term cultural fit. And truth be told, they were the most expensive as well. <laughs> I love that. And actually uh, one of the values of Nubrew, um, so the Nubrew values, the acronym is CLIMB. The B at the end of CLIMB is bravery. And bravery in the, uh, is one of the examples of bravery is just that. It's like challenging the other people in the room who may just be a little bit more assertive with their with their opinions and their, and their viewpoints and actually sort of challenging that um or questioning that not you know just being being not afraid being brave to speak up and and and, and you know question and ask like you know or suggest alternatives so i think that's 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 so important and then actually funnily enough some of our other values are around the decision making process so that like we're all kind of looking at data over emotion for example and trying to be logical with things i think trying to get rid um, of the hippo you don't want any hippos in the room highest paid person's opinion that's that is a, in my opinion, it's a recipe for, for disaster. I am the hippo. So when I see myself being that, I need to like step back and think, is this, is this my, is my idea the best idea because I'm in charge or because I have unique insight and can validate it. And if it's not absolutely correct, how can I, you know, take a step back from my ego, let other ideas try and fail or my idea try and fail or acknowledging that my idea has actually failed. That's also things that I've had to come to terms with, you know, those types of things. I think Ray Dalio's Principles is an amazing book to challenge hippo thinking and 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 putting the person who is most qualified to, to share their opinion. Like, like one of my favorite books. Them. I think it's brilliant. What's one interesting fact about you that not many people would know? 
I think, uh, yeah, playing high stakes poker is is usually what people uh, like to uh, rule around. Um, you know, having played with all sorts of celebrities and Saudi princes and all that fun stuff is is the cool one. Um, the smaller one, perhaps, is that I have a tiki bar at my house, and uh, we're, we've gone all tiki. So we're, once you go tiki, you don't go back. Um, so uh, <laughs> when it comes to e-commerce, I'm always looking for tiki sites and like tiki products. Um, it's a it's like a dirty habit of, of um, you know having a tiki drink, a rum drink, and then going online and being like, oh, we need that like fire stick or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's uh, that's us in a nutshell. I love that you've got to send me some photos of that um, when we get, when we get off this call. Um, what daily routines do you have, morning or evening, that have helped make you more successful? You know, uh, I think everybody tries to work out really well, um, and I think a morning workout is is pretty important to getting your day right. Workout, eat um, uh, a small but like substantial and, and protein oriented breakfast, um, and then you know maybe one cup of coffee. Um, the, really the most important thing for me is recognizing and, and uh, when my peak hours are. So I peak between uh, 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. So I'm, I'm a morning peak person. So I need to do all of my high energy activities. Um, in those three hours, I can extend it to one, sometimes to two. Remember, I said five hour workdays. Uh, and, and so that's when I try and get everything bulk uh, of my work done. Everything after that is an afterthought. And I've learned to, as an entrepreneur in the beginning, I tried to work all hours and, and it was just, um, it, it led to very serious burnout, um, a bit of depression. And, and I really had to work my way um, back out of that over the last few years here. And, um, and so pacing myself and saying, yes, there are, there's a fire going on, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go play. I'm playing pickleball these days, go play pickleball or relax or do a project with my son. I'm not going to, I'm not going to just sit there and like grind more because there's more to do. And then from, cause I, you run your business, don't let the business run you. So if you're running the business, I can just say, look, we're going to grow slower. We'll turn things back. Like, just make sure I'm not burning out, right? And so setting that standard for yourself on what not burning out looks like and saying, like, here's how hard I can work consistently for the next five or 10 years. The problem was always with burnout. Well, it'll just be today, right? Oh, I'll just, I'll just work, you know, till midnight tonight. And then it's like, well, tonight is tomorrow night. And then all of a sudden your kid is seven years old and you haven't talked to them in like three months. Right. So like, it's like, you, you got to just appreciate, um, that work allows you to live. Uh, don't just work until you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I like that, that, um, mindset, um, not even mindset. It's like mantra. Um, what book or books changed your mindset or life? Yeah, we mentioned principles, really love that. Um, two things that I, I liked about that was the idea meritocracy, letting the uh, the best ideas shine. And the fact that they created an AI algorithm to back that up is just incredible. Uh, and then the other thing that I, I took away from that book was the, uh, and I, I took it away. I'm not saying that I execute on this, but there is a page that follows like a, a workflow in a meeting. And it's like A, 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 A. And then the other person is doing like A, B, D, F, R. And like they're, they're running around. Uh, I tend to be the runaround person. I have that like, I don't know, ADD mindset. I still have 50 tabs open in the background here. You know, it's like, so I'll, I start a task and then there's a subtask and there's a, there's a recursive task processing. And then, um, it, but I do think that going in a flow through one thing to the next thing, to the next thing and taking a note and being patient on when you move into another task. I think that's also a very important one. 
Um, you know, recently I've got this one, Investable Entrepreneur, for anybody raising capital. Uh, that was really helpful. Let's see. Um, here's a book no one's recommended before. Uh, I'm a business major, and when I read this in college, uh, it's just marketing management. It's a straight-up textbook. It's really dull and boring, but it, it, I would honestly say that it, it changed my life on understanding business market fundamentals. What um, you know, you need to understand micro macroeconomics. Uh, you need to understand the four P's. Like everyone kind of skips over these things now because entrepreneurship allows you know anybody to to start a business and you can be successful without some of these fundamentals. But honestly, like the having the fundamentals really helps in the long run. Um, here's a fun one, a little off topic, perhaps. I'm just grabbing now. Oops. Um, the art of game design. I think that there is value in every uh, in every business of thinking about it like a game. And so this book teaches you how to design a video game, but from like a strategic standpoint, so it's not nerdy. And so if you can think about that every day in your business, like putting the hashtag on the back of your product or putting under the under the lid of your bottle, you know, a snap will put like funny statements or whatever it was, right? Little things like that. How does that affect growth and virality and other aspects of, of the game? Yeah, there it is, right? So good, good product design. Yeah, see, uh, well, well done. Um, yeah, uh, so so I think there's things like that. And then let's see, there's, there's a lot of good books up here. Um, they Ask, You Answer, I have to throw it out to Marcus Sheridan. He wrote a defining book on content marketing for all organizations and how to answer serious questions about your product. A lot of enterprise SaaS companies don't talk about pricing, for example. Pricing is the number one question. So like you're the all the cold emails that are trying to get you on a 15-minute call, you're like, just tell me how much you cost before we hop in a call. Oh, we'll discuss that in the call. Well, then I'm not doing the call, right? Like it's it's just just tell us your pricing. Just tell us who your competitors are and how you're different than them in a straightforward way. Uh, oh, we have and like I've done over 300 demos, right? Oh, we we have the best customer service of all of our uh, all of our companies in the market. I'm like I just demoed your competitor's product. They said the same thing, right? So like people don't actually know how they differentiate. That's why third parties like us need to exist to actually show what real differentiation looks like and get, you know, salespeople's head out of their own ass, essentially. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think clarifying and crystallizing the, the the difference. I think sometimes, sometimes like um, you, you, you do like the USB slide or whatever on your on your deck and, and you're like, oh, that, that looks good. But it isn't actually until when you start interviewing your customers that you actually understand a little bit more about really what your USB is. And I, I, it's another thing we've done. I'd encourage any e-commerce brand to do it, to, to have your VIP customers um, in a group, some kind of community that's growing, but um, actually to get on like long form interviews with them, um, you know, and just to understand how your product fits into their life and why they love it. And I, I mean, we've got now in our, in our Google Drive, we've got like 15 hour long interviews, right? Like not 15 hour, like 15 times one hour interviews with with 15 different people. Um, the You want the top 3% of your customers and the bottom 3% of your customers. Those are who you spend all your time interviewing. And then you design the product and the experience and the marketing uh, uh, to you know avoid the detractors or or better sell to the the problems and experiences that they were actually having and and of course focusing on the the top three percent. What unusual or underrated food or drink should more people try out other than tiki? <laughs> that, uh, darn, that's that's. Um, hmm. I, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm starting to do a lot of, uh, of, of non-meat products like impossible burgers and, 
and impossible patties and stuff like that. So I, th I think it is important uh, for everybody to be considering moving into a non-meat diet. I'm not going to tell everybody to go vegetarian because I'm, I'm not planning on doing uh, that myself. But if you can take, you know, one one day a week and make it vegetarian, like just just start with that and and see uh, how it is. There are plenty of great uh, vegetarian meals out there, right? So there's there's a way to be uh, strong, healthy, and happy uh, with without meat. And so I think that that can be a good path forward for people I, I totally agree and i think actually if everybody um went like vegetarian for like one day a week that would actually solve a lot of like exactly. the, the, the problems that the meat industry sort of creates and stuff um and like you said there, there's there is so many options and more options every day coming out as as the the whole sort of plant-based food industry innovates um so it's it's an exciting time and i think there's a lot of options on there we've had a few great plant-based uh product providers on the show as well so shout out to them last question i don't know if it's oh, an, no. appropriate or not but i've been doing cbd gummies and i'm loving them nice. <laughs> throw that in there if you want it <laughs> yeah final question what makes you happiest oh geez um a, a good day for me is um, waking up early, running for about 30 minutes. Uh, I, I usually have to send my kid to school as well. Uh, three to four hours of work, uh, quitting for a nice lunch. Let's just say that in a perfect world, maybe work is over at four hours, but usually it goes a little bit longer. Um, being able to uh, play a couple of video games in the afternoon or evening, being able to play some pickleball or some sort of outdoor activity, um, flying a drone with my son or something along those lines hanging out with the family at night with a glass of wine over dinner. And then if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, late night shenanigans uh, with some more drinking and maybe my wife does karaoke and, uh, and dancing on our, our table with some uh, disco lights on. Beautiful. Uh, that sounds pretty, pretty happy. F stock full of happy there. Derek, this has been an absolute whirlwind. I know that we could do a part two, three, four um, to this. There's so much to speak about and, and and so many tangents to explore. But this today has been tremendously intriguing and exciting. I love the way your mind works. I really do. Like the the the, the strategy, the 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 uh, you're you've got the right amount of logical, but you've also got like that realist. Like if you if you let a logical person do all the thinking they they typically someone that's fully logical doesn't really get humans and how to speak to them right because humans um, aren't logical that's, exactly. that's the first thing you got to learn <laughs> so, so you, you've got that 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 nice really nice balance that human and logic side um you know intertwining with your experience and um you know it's 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 demonstrable it's it's really apparent in e-commerce tech dot io um the product that you've you, you know you've rolled out to the market i encourage everyone li listening to to check it out there's a lot of stuff on there i mean it's, most of it is free right like like all it's of all, it is free, really. everything right so, now is free for merchants so. so um you know check it out see what fits see try things on and avoid those popping on hopping on the 15 minute zoom called banes of your life emails um that, that we all get but derek it's been an absolute pleasure an absolute plus thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us thank you so much for having me 
Hey there, you incredibly good-looking human. Thanks so much for listening. If you had a good time today and would like more good times in the future, please hit that subscribe button and leave a heartwarming review. I read them all and it will go a long way to help others out there benefit from all the teachings of this show. And if you want to get in touch or otherwise learn more about me, head to martincook.co.uk or smarterdestiny.com. I really appreciate you. You're an incredible human. Until next time, keep crushing.